You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, Episode 6. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progress Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. So today we're going to follow up kind of an extension of our last episode. We talked about insulin resistance. We finished up with a little bit of a discussion about lab testing that we use specifically for that, which again, as we mentioned, there's really not a specific test, but we kind of add a couple things together under the context of you know weight gain, obesity, and of course, looking at this insulin problem that we were always talking and about. The leptin too, because we talked a lot about leptin resistance and how leptin resistance and insulin resistance go hand in hand. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And that's another test that we actually have on that panel that really no one is ever really looking at. No. And for someone that actually has a considerable weight issue, they're as we mentioned, the, their leptin level is going to be high. So it's, it's kind of a nice thing to have that as a baseline because then as you, as we're going to talk about today, or we're going to talk about intermittent fasting, as you employ a certain type of dietary strategy, then you should be able to see those numbers begin to come down over a period of, you know, three, six, nine, twelve months. And those uh, numbers being... Uh, well, whether you're looking at insulin, we're looking at, you know, maybe triglycerides, which is also part of the panel, where they're looking at leptin, you're looking at C-reactive protein. These are all the, all the, the tests that kind of point in the direction of someone that is, you know, having this metabolic condition. And some of the conditions that we mentioned last time too, polycystic ovarian syndrome, fatty liver, type 2 diabetes, you know, these all fall under that umbrella of someone that has insulin resistance. And again, conventionally, you and I both deal with people all the time that when they walk in the door, you sit there and you talk to them, whether you look at their medications, or whatever, you kind of know what's going on. But conventionally, their doctors are not really paying attention for that. And that's one of the reasons why we talk a lot about it, just because, you know, we're in the United States, we're talking, you know, good 70, 80% of the population is having these issues. So and yeah, you're right. Their doctor is looking to see if they have diabetes type 2 or their borderline diabetes, which technically borderline diabetes is insulin resistance. And so they don't really know what to do other than put them on medications where we're looking at some different factors that you can implement and change so that you can reduce that insulin resistance, you can reduce leptin resistance, and also most of, well, I wouldn't say most of all, but importantly, you know, for a, a lot of us is reduced a little weight. Yeah, right. Everyone wants to wear a smaller pants, a pant size, a smaller dress size. We all want to, there's a, there's a certain amount of, and, and no shame involved. There's a certain amount of vanity that goes with wanting to lose weight. Uh, absolutely. Why not? Uh, losing weight, feeling good about yourself and the way you look and feel, um, what's wrong with that? You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Yeah. But if somebody does have some insulin resistance or leptin resistance, they're going to find it almost impossible to lose weight because not only is it going to be hard to see that, you know, the number on the scale go down or you, like you're saying, the inches on your waistline go down, but you're also going to be really hungry. Yeah, right. And this is where now that we're, we've talked about the insulin resistance, which is the big problem. Okay. Now we're going to talk a little bit more of the, you know, the kind of the foundational aspect of fixing that problem, which we're, and that's why we're going to talk about intermittent fasting today, just because it's a, 
It's a new dietary concept that's been around for a long time. Fasting goes back to ancient times. People have been fasting all over the globe for, you know, for centuries. But now we're kind of using it in a very 21st century context that I think it actually works fairly well for people. Yeah, for, you know, for those metabolic issues and also for weight loss. Yeah, right. And sometimes those go hand in hand. Sometimes they don't. A healthy diet, you know, kind of a mantra that you and I have always talked about. Sometimes a healthy diet isn't always a weight loss diet. Or really when we say the word weight loss, we really mean fat loss. And sometimes those are not the same thing by any means. Intermittent fasting kind of goes against the grain. In this functional medicine, natural medicine world, functional nutrition world, the idea has been for a number of years is the whole small frequent meal idea. You know, eat five to six small meals, eat every two to three hours. And you and I have used that with our patients for a number of years. And people, you know, honestly, we've seen it firsthand. People actually do, particularly women, they do very well with that type of a strategy. But sometimes, especially in these kind of insulin resistant kind of extreme cases, the PCOS, the fatty livers, sometimes they don't really do, they don't really lose weight that way. Oh yeah. For weight loss. I mean, there's not one lifestyle modification that fits all. Like you had mentioned the small frequent meals. There's a a large number of people that will have positive effects with doing the small frequent meals and making them, you know, healthy meals. Also, you know, there's been the low fat diet fad that's been around. That was real popular in the nineties. Low carb is very popular, low calorie, you know, not everyone work, not every dietary modification or lifestyle modification works for everyone. Yeah, right. And honestly, when, it, when we're talking intermittent fasting, there's another strategy, which is called a, a, a LCHF, a low-carb, high-fat diet. When you combine the two of those together, at least in my opinion, I think you create a little bit of synergy. Uh, now, I will say when you say low-carb, high-fat, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're rolling their eyes. It's like another low-carb diet. But I think that there's some caveats to that low-carb, high-fat strategy that blend well when you're combining that with an intermittent fasting strategy. The point of the intermittent fasting in general is to minimize the frequency of eating on a daily basis. When you minimize the frequency of eating, every time you put something in your mouth, relatively speaking, your your blood sugar and insulin is going to respond. So if you are eating you know, four to six meals a day and you're insulin resistant, you're basically putting insulin on top of insulin, which is really the problem anyways. It just can't, it ends up compounding itself the more you tend to do that. That's why some of these more extreme cases, they don't really respond as well as they, as someone else that may not need to lose that much weight. Yeah. So with the intermittent fasting, you're you're changing the amount of insulin being secreted so you can reduce insulin resistance. Of course, by reducing insulin resistance, you thereby reduce your leptin resistance. And then something else we had talked about on the previous podcast is about that set point, that hypothalamus set point. How many people have lost weight only to have it come back on really fast? Because if the body thinks, you know, my set point is 200 pounds, sure, you can lose 20 pounds and get down to 180, but it's really, they'll really quickly get back up to 200 because their hypothalamus thinks their set point for weight is 200 and wants to keep it there. Yeah. And that set point, that altered or distorted set point is because of the resistance. The resistance, the insulin resistance, and, and like you mentioned, even the leptin resistance is because of high levels and persistently high levels over time. The body then stops responding to that. So a way to undo it, and this is the challenging part in everyday society, how do we get that insulin to go down over a long period of time 
without necessarily cutting our calories, without reducing our calories significantly. That's a really hard thing to do. Because as you just talked about, when you do that, when you just go on a, on a low, when you just cut calories as a strategy, the set point's going to kick in. You're going to lose 20, gain back 30. You're going to lose 50, gain back 70 because the body is too smart for the math equation. So this intermittent fasting idea is a way to kind of periodically trick the body into altering these hormone levels. So then over time, and time is the key, right? When it comes to weight loss, unfortunately, it's not about speed. It's not about how quickly you lose weight. It's more about the consistency of it over, you know, over a period of time that we're, you know, someone's going to actually have some long-term success. But in our society, let's be honest, everyone wants to lose weight yesterday, right? They want it to come off quickly. And uh, we both have seen many times, the bigger somebody is, the more weight they have to lose, the faster they lose it, the harder it is for them to keep it off. In some ways, that's the that's the biggest loser syndrome. They lose a bunch of weight quickly and it's almost inevitable that weight's going to come back. And our goal is, of course, is to lose weight, but like you had mentioned, to lose fat. When someone cuts their calories down or changes things up, is it ends up having them lose more protein. So you've seen people where they, you know, they say they lose five pounds, but they don't, their bodies don't really change or they're still wearing the, you know, this same pants feel the same. But when someone loses five true pounds of fat, they notice that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that, you know, weight loss really means fat loss. And, you know, I don't even know if we really need to make that distinction necessarily because ultimately if we really thought about that, yeah, everybody wants to lose body fat. But, you know, when we're talking about this is insulin, which is, you know, the fat storing hormone. If you have insulin around, then it's very easy to store fat. But if you don't have insulin around, then it's very, you know, you can't store the fat. So if you keep the insulin down, there's no fat storage, and then you can promote the loss of fat. Yeah, right. The, the fat the fat cells will start mobilizing the, uh, the, the triglycerides into free fatty acids. Your body can actually burn it as a fuel source. So this is a, you know, this is a interesting concept because in the United States, we're eating carbs all the time. Now, let's be honest. It's not that carbs are bad in general, right? But too many carbs on a consistent meal by meal basis every single day, hundreds and hundreds of grams of carbs on a daily basis. I don't have an exact number, but I would estimate just based on patients that we speak with on a regular basis that the average American probably consumes somewhere between two to 300 grams of carbohydrates a day. Right. And unfortunately, those are probably not fruit and vegetable grams, right? Those are all the wrong kinds of grams of carbohydrates. So we're talking about glycogen stores. And if anyone understands what that, what glycogen even is, that's how our body stores carbohydrates, but it can only do that in a very finite amount, a very small amount of glycogen. So then what ends up happening, if your glycogen stores are full in your liver and in your muscles, then automatically your body is going to be prone to fat storage. Okay? And that's the American society. We always have full glycogen stores. The body just wants to you know, save it for a rainy day, puts it on your belly and your hips and thighs. And now it is a one-way track. It's a, it's a fast track into your fat cell. And then it doesn't, because like you said, because of the insulin being in the way, then it never comes back out. That's how do we fix that problem? That's a, that's a hard problem to fix. And with the intermittent fasting, it is it does have some similarities to the keto diet or the low carb diet, and which low carb diets work great for people. But like I said, it doesn't work for everybody because I do find, especially for females, going to ketosis for long periods of time that it puts a big stressor on their thyroid. So anybody that's on thyroid or that has a thyroid issue, you do see um, some issues with having too much of ketosis. So actually with intermittent fasting is it's not, 
you know, it's not a low carb ketogenic diet, but you are doing, like you said, the fat and protein, but you do implement the carbs. So you're not technically going to be going into ketosis. Yeah, right. Now you certainly can, but it's not meant to be straight ketosis long term. There's kind of like an ebb and flow to that. So we'll get into the specifics of what, you know, and there's a few different ways to do intermittent fasting. There's some books you could probably find on Amazon, you know, a, a couple of different strategies on how to do it. The basic tenant of it is that you're minimizing your, your, closing the gap, you're narrowing the gap of how frequently you're feeding yourself on a daily basis. So the basic strategy that we follow is, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, lunch and dinner are consumed basically in an eight hour window. There's a couple of caveats to that. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, the basic three meals a day. Now we have talked before about the whole bulletproof idea, Dave Asprey's, you know, putting butter and coconut oil in your coffee. Uh, to be honest, uh, when you and I were back in school, actually, before you and I actually got together, I used to put, I used to, you know, consume fat every day as part of my weight loss strategy. Everyone thought I was weird when I did that. So Dave Asprey's idea of putting butter and a coconut oil or MCT oil in a, in a cup of coffee is, in my mind is kind of a, a really novel, very clever idea because, you know, as, a, as human beings, we don't just consume fat by itself, right? Consuming fat by itself is kind of, it almost kind of makes you feel a little, you know, kind of a little nauseous or something. You really don't do it that way. But when you combine that into a morning beverage, a beverage you're already doing anyways, you put a little oil in there. Again, people think when I tell people to do that, or I recommend that they think it's a little weird, um, but then they try it and you know, it seems to be okay. Yes, like you said, you know, shout out to Dave Asprey because that bulletproof coffee idea is novel. Now, some of us don't drink coffee, like we don't drink coffee, or I don't drink coffee except on Saturdays we might go get a latte. Yeah, right. Yeah, a little <laughs> from the from the fancy coffee shop down the street. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I don't drink coffee. I don't like to drink coffee. It makes me anxious. It makes me wired. But I do like green tea. Is you can actually do it with green tea. Yeah. And you can even do it without tea or coffee. There's recipes out there where you can just do, I think one uses like vanilla powder and they butter and oil. The point of it is we're breaking it down, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You have fat only for breakfast. Now, if you're overweight, like considerably overweight or a woman over the age of 40, you can always add in a little bit of protein to that. So if let's say by chance the oil piece is not your, is not your thing, right? It just doesn't seem appealing. Then you could just have I know a breakfast you have quite often in the morning, you have some eggs and maybe an avocado or a few slices of avocado. You're having the fat from the avocado. You're having a couple of eggs, a little protein. And of course, the egg yolks. The egg yolks are the the more important part than the egg whites. Everybody thinks they should have these egg white omelets. And I think they're missing the best part by leaving the yolks out. Then you get to dinner or excuse me, you get to lunch. Lunch is a little bit more of a protein, fat kind of vegetable idea, a very non-glycemic a load kind of a lunch, a salad with a little bit of protein, maybe a chicken breast or salmon on that salad would be perfectly acceptable and easy to find whether you're making it yourself, you're going to a restaurant. And then dinner is where you combine a protein with a, a calorically denser carbohydrate, as we would maybe call it a starch of some sort. When I ask people what they, when, when they hear the word starch, what do they think of? They automatically say a potato. You know, whether it's a white potato, a yam, a sweet potato, maybe some rice, maybe some beans, quinoa, those are all examples, even lentils, those are all examples of what we would consider to be starchy carbohydrates. So you have fat in the morning by itself. You have the carbohydrates, a little bit of protein at dinner time. You're not combining them together. That evening meal becomes a nice, full, satiating meal. Makes you feel really full. But it's you know the carbs are really coming in at one main meal, not spread out all throughout the day. 
And I know people think, oh, I don't want to have my carbohydrates at night. I'm just going to store them as fat. And that's not really true because when you have your carbohydrates in the evening time, it actually raises up your serotonin so you sleep better. So it's actually nice to have your carbs at, at night, good and healthy carbs. There's unhealthy carbs, of course, which people get excited about, like, I can have carbs at night. No, it's certain particular carbs that you have at night, but it does. It raises up your serotonin and you actually sleep all night instead of waking up or having trouble falling asleep. Yeah, yeah. So you're exactly right. So your insulin does go up, therefore your serotonin does go up, and it's going to prepare you a little bit better for a a sleep cycle than not having anything like that and trying to restrict, restrict, restrict. So you really get this nice larger meal. What happens on Thanksgiving? People, you know, go to Thanksgiving meal. They, you know, they have this huge Thanksgiving dinner and they want to take a nap. So we're kind of positioning that, and that's not necessarily our idea necessarily, right? That's the whole concept behind behind intermittent fasting. When you're when you're speaking to the small frequent meal crowd, that kind of goes against the grain a little bit. That is almost in direct contrast with what the small frequent meal people say. And to be honest, I don't think really one is better than the other. I think the small frequent meal idea or concept works for a lot of people. The intermittent fasting works for maybe a lot of people, but maybe a more specific type of person or one that has a particular type of problem, which is what we're talking about. As with any lifestyle modification and you're trying to lose weight is, you know, the whole, we're going to be hungry. Whether you're doing intermittent fasting, ketosis or whatnot, there is a level of a a little hunger that goes in there. So one of the key things, of course, is trying to work on that appetite, which is, well, low calorie diets. I mean, they're, they're hungry. And then when they stop doing that low calorie, talk about binging. So that's why a lot of that weight comes on because that hypothalamus is trying to get back to the set point. But you know, in any of these instances, you're going to have a level of, you know, I'm kind of hungry. So that's where we implement more of an amino acid protocol as opposed to, you know, weight loss clinics do Topamax and Fentramine, and then they do some B12 shots and a little Cytomel is, but you know, especially Fentramine, all those appetite suppressants, they're going, they're going, they're going to backfire and kick you in the bum and your hypothalamus is going to take over. And when you stop that Fentramine, because most people do because of the anxiety part to it, and you can't take Fentramine for long periods of time anyway. So when you're done with it, you know, that weight comes right back on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people do lose weight while they're on those things, but it's it's done through as we're kind of saying not to do is through caloric restriction. So the intermittent fasting idea is a way to accomplish that, a way to minimize how much you eat, kind of relinquishing it down to just a couple of meals. But because of the way that it's set up, having some fat in the morning, which fat by itself does not have an impact on blood sugar and insulin, keeps your insulin. I mean, it might have a little impact on blood sugar and insulin, but not as much as carbs do. Even protein. I mentioned the term low carb, high fat diet, LCHF. That does not mean a, that does not mean a high protein diet. This, this, what we're talking about is really kind of moderate sources of protein, but the caveat to that is increasing the fat. When the carbs go down relatively, the fat has to come up. And that's what keeps the brain somewhat happy and satiated. But like you said, we live in a very tempted, a world with a lot of temptation. It's very easy to get distracted when you're trying to lose weight. And as we were talking about from a resistance perspective, it's high levels over persistent high levels over a long period of time. 
that we need to undo. You mean the insulin? The insulin, right. So it's not a matter of perfection per se. It's a matter of having a strategy and then letting time take over. And how do we do that? You know, the amino acids from an appetite suppression standpoint, one, they're safer. And two, we've noticed that they just end up working better for people. And they're, because they're amino acids, not pharmaceuticals, they end up tend to, you know, they get a lot better results uh, from them. Oh yeah. And they're not habit forming. They're not addicting. It's just really helps to take the edge off of that off of wanting to, you know, maybe eat something that we shouldn't, you know, I'm sure, you know, when you, when you're on the amino acids, it's where, you know, you look at a brownie and you think, oh, that does look good, but you don't really need to go eat it. Yeah, right. It just looks good. Yeah, yeah. And, and it what we've noticed with people is that it makes them just kind of not care so much. Yeah, you're not thinking about food all the time. People that do that caloric restriction, they're thinking about food all the time. Yeah. And maybe not right away, right? Their motivation, willpower kicks in in the beginning. And then as the time goes on, that voice in their head starts to get louder and louder and louder, not because they don't have willpower, but because it's just biology. You drop your calories, your brain says eat more food. And because of the environment that we live in, the brain is always going to tell you to have you know, the, the wrong kinds of foods, right? The high calorie, high dense foods, your brain's never going to tell you to eat broccoli or, you know, asparagus. It's going to tell you to have, you know, carbs and sugar and candy and breads and pastas and all the things that give us that, that pleasure sense. So what we're trying to get across here is that you can, you can have a, a nice well-rounded meal. That's where the low carb piece doesn't come into play. You're just keeping your carbs at one meal. You're not necessarily trying to keep them below a certain number of grams per day, which is what a typical keto diet tries to do. That's where people tend to lose it over time. They can do it for a while, but then it kind of pitters out and then they just gain all their weight back. So. Yeah. So the, the whole goal with trying to you know lose fat with the weight loss is to balance that biology because like you said, willpower never wins in the end. Yeah, no, it certainly does not. Uh, the willpower is if you're trying to rely solely on willpower, our brain our brain, the emotional part of our brain is people call it like the lizard brain, the primal brain, uh, part of the brain called the limbic system. And that's where all the reward pa- pathways are. And particularly a, a hormone called dopamine. Dopamine is that pleasure hormone or that pleasure neurotransmitter. The amino acids that we use are specifically there to basically have a positive balancing impact on dopamine and serotonin to minimize some of that distractions. If we're living, you know, a few thousand years ago before the technology that we have, you know, before refined and processed foods, we really wouldn't have much of a concern, right? Because we wouldn't have a choice. Yeah, there'd be no access. You know, mm-hmm. now we just have too much access. Gosh, even 50 years ago or, you know, 70 years ago, there's not as much access as we have now with Costco and delivery and your apps and people will bring you food. I mean, it's just in parties and families. And I mean, it's just, it's just so easy. Like you said, it's so tempting. Yeah. And how cheap all those foods are. Oh yeah. They uh, are quite yeah. cheap nowadays. Yeah. So it used to be that, you know, I remember when you and I were kids, they'd have all these commercials with, you know, the kids in Ethiopia and Africa and all these sad commercials and the kids with the big bellies and the flies on their face. Now the big problem around the world is obesity, not starvation because, you know, the cheapest food are the most unhealthiest that is contributing to this obesity problem uh, worldwide, whether it's soda or chips or you know whatever, people that don't have any money, even third world countries, they're still able to afford the highly processed foods because they're really, really cheap, which is unfortunate that the healthier foods are more expensive. You you, know, you have to have a certain standard of living to be able to afford those. That's, that's not right. There's something fundamentally wrong with that, you know, collectively around the world. So... Again, our brain is, is always designed to overeat and store fat. We are always going to look out and seek out the highest 
calorie dense food. It's almost like this efficiency uh, gene in our brain. It's not really an efficiency gene. I just called it that. But our brain is looking for Whenever we're making food decisions, it's looking for the most bang for your buck, so to speak. So how much energy can get, can we get with expending the least amount of energy? That's, that's the American problem in, you know, in, in a nutshell. And what's interesting about that intermittent fasting, like you said, you know, it works for certain people, but I've seen, you know, that with that intermittent fasting is that can work for somebody that needs to lose a hundred pounds, but it can also work for somebody that needs to lose just those vanity pounds. Cause there's lots of people that want to lose weight and, you know, Every female you talk to wants to lose 10 pounds, but it, you know, that intermittent fasting, anybody that wants to lose even, you know, 20, you know, 40 or under, it does have an effect on that. So it's kind of cool that it has kind of more of a wide spectrum on it. Yeah. The, I think the hard part, as you mentioned, is, you know, not relying so much on the willpower side, because if you do have a little bit more weight to lose, it may, you know, let's say, let's say you got 150 pounds to lose, right? You're in that kind of a bigger category. You have a lot of weight. You might not want to start off with an intermittent fasting technique. You might want to kind of ease into it. You don't want to go from having a lot of highly refined processed foods and then automatically jump into that because I think it's just going to increase someone's failure rate. Okay, But I think it'd be a nice transition to eventually get to that point because you're right. It's a strategy where it could be, we don't, I don't like to necessarily put everybody in the same boat, like it's one size fits all, but from a nutritional perspective, you're right. That is one situation where that type of an intermittent fasting strategy could fit both circumstances. Yeah, because I do have a lot of female patients that are working with nutritionists and they're doing the small frequent meals and they don't, you know, they truly don't really need to lose a lot of weight. It's just those vanity pounds for summer is, and they're saying, oh, you know, I'm eating, you know, a little turkey and avocado in the, you know, for lunch, I'm having some eggs and, you know, a little coconut oil in the morning and then I'm having, you know, snacks in between and then I'm having a healthy dinner and really they're doing the low carb and they're not losing a pound and that's because they need to work on trying to reduce down that insulin. Like you mentioned is they're having insulin a little bit elevated, not in a way that's going to put them at diabetes at all or in diabetes risk, but their insulin is slightly elevated all day long where it's a healthy diet, but it's maintaining that weight and it's not taking off those vanity pounds. And also cortisol could be playing a role in there too. So as, you know, as women, as their female hormones are decreasing, their cortisol cells are rising, their insulin's rising, uh, and that's where their bodies are just not cooperating. What they are able to do when they're 25, basically just not eat and exercise a bunch, doesn't really work when they're 45 or 55. It doesn't work anymore. Their bodies kind of start revolting a little bit, you know, kind of rebelling, and uh, their lifestyles really don't change that much, but the scale either doesn't move at all or it keeps going up. And this is a strategy that, you know, that could, you know, especially when it comes down to losing those vanity pounds, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 pounds. That is, in my opinion, it's all about the diet. But there's so much another, there's a study that just came out, I think this, this past week, talking about how exercise does not really support weight loss. Now, you and I were talking about that kind of off the podcast on the last episode. We have a little bit of a difference of opinion about that. I think ultimately, I think we have the same idea. I think exercise is important, especially when you're trying to change body composition, especially for the vanity pound people. You're trying to lose 10 or 20 pounds. I think exercise plays a role in that. When you need to lose 100 or 150 I don't think exercise is really all that important. And if you need to lose that much weight, you shouldn't be going to like these crazy boot camp classes and trying to trying to reproduce the biggest loser show at your local gym. I don't think that's really the the attention and the focus should be put on the diet first because that is most important and is going to give you long-term success. 
it shouldn't be fitness first and diet second. It should always be diet first and fitness maybe later. But it's really, you know, the emphasis is always put on, well, we just need to exercise more. I don't know about you, but I know that I've seen dozens and dozens of women that do that on a regular basis. And if you just said yourself, they eat very little and exercise like crazy because that's what everyone's told to do and they don't get very good results. Sometimes they get worse. They get opposite results. They actually keep gaining weight. No, I've definitely seen that. I mean, I think exercise is important in terms of health and being a human and we're also sedentary that we need to move. But like you said, you don't have to necessarily, you know, go into some crazy cardio class. But if you enjoy it or if you like to walk or maybe do some yoga or, you know, like we do a little, you know, a little running here and there, you know, I'm not we're not doing it to lose weight. We're just doing it because it's just, you know, a healthy aspect of somebody's, you know, well-rounded life. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, there are some definite, I'm not trying to minimize the positive benefits of exercise. There's lots of them. Exercise is the best antidepressant in the world, right? Raises your, as they say, your endorphins, it raises your catecholamines, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine. Uh, you know, those are all really positive things. But from just a weight loss perspective, it's not the, the jury's still out on that. Some people overemphasize. And I think that at least in the beginning, when someone is trying to make some of these fundamental changes, I think the attention should be put diet first and exercise second because you try to do too much that's where the brain you know trying to develop new habits the brain gets overwhelmed and that motivation drops off and then people default back to their previous behavior when we're trying to you know intermittent fasting i think honestly i think is a long-term strategy that someone can employ but it takes a little bit of time a little time to to kind of get it right to kind of get into a groove of it and you know have your lunch and dinner in an eight-hour window and not eat until the next day and and then be able to avoid some of the temptation that's there. That that takes a little bit of planning, preparation, a little bit of a little bit of willpower, not too much. And then it ha- you have a like I said, a long term strategy that you can follow. Yeah, no, you can like we mentioned, you can reduce down that insulin resistance that can pull you out of a you know a potential future of diabetes. You know that can help with the with the leptin resistance. But in the beginning, because as we talked about in that podcast last time, you know the previous podcast is leptin resistance. People are hungry, even though even though their leptin is high, those those receptors in the brain aren't acknowledging it, and so even though they're full, they're starving. So that's where I, like we had mentioned, those amino acids take the edge off of that appetite, and then they can you know have some success without feeling like they're starving all the time. Yeah, right. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the amino acids on the next episode. We use them for a few other things as well. We use them in Parkinson's. We use them in Crohn's disease. There's a few other conditions where the amino acids actually work well. And it's really complicated as far as actually what they do and how they work. Uh, we'll get into a little bit of that, but I think it's, you know, it's even, it's really complex, really complicated stuff. It's about competitive inhibition and all these physiology and biochemistry things that we'll, we'll, we'll touch on from kind of a 30,000 foot view that no one probably really always, you know, really cares that much. But if it actually gives a result or gives a positive response, we'll talk a little bit more about a, a case. I have a nice, sweet lady in Northern California that actually has, some, uh, has Parkinson's. She's doing fantastic. So we'll talk more about that one in the next episode. Great. All right. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening to the Progression Health Podcast, and we'll catch you next time on another episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, take care. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at ProgressYourHealth.com.